You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Tina Selig, who is the executive director of the Knight Hennessy Scholars at Stanford University. Also, I guess the emeritus director or former director of the Stanford Technology Venture Program. And you've taught in the engineering school and also the D school. And pretty much most of the work that you've done has been around creativity. And so, you know, we're going to have to talk a lot about creativity as a academic discipline and as a characteristic that people can acquire (laughs) or cultivate. But you did say somewhere in the book that the journey from becoming a neuroscientist to being a teacher of creativity was, was a long journey. And you described that journey in little bits and pieces all across your work. And I think that that journey is in some ways illustrative of what it is that you're trying to teach, right? Because you made a bunch of moves that make sense in retrospect, but it might not have made a whole heck of a lot of sense at the time. So do you think that those incidents in your life, those sort of moments where you went, when you dropped out of school and then kind of landed in Palo Alto and then switched out of neuroscience and became a a book author on cooking, which I I have to talk about that. I haven't read that book, but I want to talk about that, to becoming a entrepreneur, to ultimately winding up as this director and teacher at Stanford. Do you think that those experiences helped you to understand creativity better than if you had had a different set of experiences? If you ask most people toward the end of their career to map out what they've done, most people have had really interesting pivots along the way that looked at the time as though they might not make sense. But in retrospect, you know, in the rearview mirror, they they make all the sense in the world. In fact, I could tell my story as if it's a complete random walk, sort of the way you described it, or it would be completely logical because all of the things I did led in some way to the next thing. And a lot of it has to do with seeing and seeing opportunities. Um, Let me give you just one example. When I did finish graduate school at Stanford, I did my PhD at the medical school in neuroscience. I did not want to stay in the lab. And I really wanted to work in the fledgling biotech world. Genentech had just started a whole bunch of new uh, neuroscience-related startups were getting going. And I was very, very excited about that. But I didn't want to work in the lab. I wanted to work on the business strategy side. But of course, I was not a strategist. I hadn't gone to business school. So I was finding it really difficult to find a job in these companies. And so I just kept you know, asking around and asking around. I finally got the introduction to the head of a consulting firm, Booz Allen, the head of the firm, for an informational interview. My hope was that they would be impressed enough that they would introduce me to some of their clients who were in the medtech, biotech space. Well, the guy who looked at my resume said, well, gee, why would someone who's a neuroscientist be a good management consultant? Now, I could have said the truth. I mean, at the moment, which was like, no, no, I'm not considering that. I just am interested in, you know, understanding if you have any companies that might be a good fit. But I'm not a stupid person. So when he said that, I said, well, gee, doing management consulting and brain research is exactly the same skill set. And he said, tell me more. And so I outlined all the similarities because really and truly, 
They're both research, right? You figure out what the burning questions are. You gather all your data. You analyze it. You come up with some interesting insights. You then figure out what the next burning questions are. Well, he set up a whole bunch of other interviews that day. And I walked out at the end of the day with a job offer. Now, I wasn't going to say no to that. So even though it might look like, well, how did you go from being a neuroscientist to a management consultant? Well, it wasn't an obvious fit for me. But once that opportunity presented itself, it seemed like an obvious mood. And to be honest, it was incredible. I got sort of the equivalent of a business school education and they were paying me. And so I spent two years immersed in this world, learning about industries I knew nothing about and uh, learning all sorts of tools I had not learned when I was in my neuroscience grad program. Now, I know you've, one of your themes is, is luck. And Louis Pasteur said luck favors the prepared mind. But I think, you know, when he was talking about that, he, he sort of meant, I don't know, preparation in the form of laying down a solid research foundation. But I think when you're talking about preparedness, it's almost like you're talking about preserving optionality or having an acute sense of observation, right? Exactly. Exactly. And because that was the situation where it presented itself. And I was like, oh, someone just handed me something. I can give it away or I could not see it. But I saw all of a sudden in front of me an opportunity I'd never even thought of before. In fact, one of my colleagues uh, who teaches in Chile says, there's a million dollars in every room. It's just up to you to find it. Mm -hmm. And and so this latest book, I forgot to mention your books, by the way, the latest book is called Creativity Rules. And then you've also got Ingenious, A Crash Course in Creativity, and What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, A Crash Course on Making Your Place in the World. And I guess all three of these books are kind of like crash courses, and they all share this theme around creativity. And the latest thing you articulate is this idea of the invention uh, cycle. And I mean, we talk about, I mean, you talk about these courses in, in creativity. Why is it that we need courses in creativity? Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? It's actually kind of sad that we need them in grad school because this should be taught in elementary school. I often feel embarrassed that that these are classes that we're teaching grad students. And the students often come out saying, I am so frustrated that they were not given these skills earlier. You know, we teach math, we teach science, we teach history, we teach art, we teach music. Why do we not teach creative problem solving? And there are a very clear set of tools and techniques and mindsets that are required, that allow you to really come up with really interesting solutions to problems that we face every single day. Well, I mean, is is it that creativity is more necessary, I guess, in a world with, I guess, you know, more change or in a world where you're expected to do different things over the course of your life? I mean, has is there a sort of a, a demand for creativity that kind of goes up and down over time so that at some point in our history, creativity wasn't really as necessary as it is now? Oh, that can't be, that, that can't be farther from the truth. I mean, listen, if you were living out of Savannah somewhere and needed to survive, you're going to have to be pretty creative. In fact, if you look at all the tools that people have created over the eons, it has come from creative problem solving. You know, what can I do to, to get my next meal? What do I do to create some shelter for my family? What do I do to get out of this, you know, weather? And so absolutely, this is something, this is a set of skills that are required for all of us. I think one of the problems is, is our school system has been very designed to test things that are easy to measure. So multiple choice tests, one right answer. 
and creative problem solving isn't like that. You know, you end up with lots and lots of answers and there's not necessarily sure at the beginning which one is the right one or the best one or the most effective one. And so it's really difficult to test for creativity and therefore we often don't teach it. I mean, you think about some of the most important things in our lives, you know, love, ethics, and we don't teach these things. But what could be more important? Or, or we don't teach them to kids early on because, you know what? It's difficult to teach this. It's t- difficult to measure it. But I love this wonderful quote, which is, not all things that count can be counted. Problem solving is extremely important. And because it's difficult to measure, doesn't mean we shouldn't be teaching it. Right. But I mean, it's an elective, right? Why is it an elective? I mean, I don't think it's part of the required core set of courses the business school or the engineering school or the medical school or any school, we actually tried to make it a core course. We had a sort of problem reframing course in our core at the Haas School of Business. And we we dropped it because there were a lot of students that didn't like it, weren't comfortable with it. So why isn't it essential? Why isn't it a core part of, of what we teach? Certainly should be, but it also can be because creative problem solving can be baked into any other course, right? A lot of it has to do with the way you teach, right? We could teach anything by asking students provocative questions that don't have one right answer. You know, you could put them in the situation, let's say you're teaching history, you could put them in the situation of one of the protagonists in the historical situation and ask them, how might they have solved this problem? What were different opportunities for them? Instead of teaching history as a set of, you know, dates and facts that get regurgitated. So it's not just that it's elective, it's just not baked in, in the way that it should be in every single thing we do. Right. So the existence of of a course on creativity as a separate course, I mean, that's kind of a, a symptom of the problem, I guess, right? That it has to be sort of patched on instead of baked in. I think you're absolutely right. And we are getting to a point where we think about lots of things, whether it's ethics or creative problem solving or empathy, that there are other things that we're saying, you know what, we need to bake these in to the courses that we're teaching and to think really differently about what we're preparing our students to do. The world is a very complicated place and uh, these skills could not be more any more important. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about the Stanford Technology Venture Program because Courses like this, they're oftentimes packaged and marketed as entrepreneurship classes. But most of the people who go through them don't typically wind up as venture-backed founders. I mean, I, I kind of think of these courses the way I think about my wine class. You know, maybe 2% of the people who go through the class wind up starting a winery, but the other 98% develop an appreciation <laughs> you know, for, uh, for wine, which hopefully spills over into other areas of their life. I mean, when you teach a course on entrepreneurship, you're not necessarily expecting them to be venture-backed founders, but you do expect them to incorporate this entrepreneurial mindset into whatever it is that they do. So is it important that they experience what it's like to, say, start a company, or is the learning sort of more, more broadly construed? So it's such an interesting question. And it's one that I've thought about for many, many years since I've been teaching entrepreneurship. And colleague Tom Byers and I always liked this wonderful expression that he created, which is that teaching entrepreneurship is a Trojan horse. 
It's a Trojan horse for teaching incredibly important life skills. It's about seeing opportunities. It's about problem solving. It's about creating value. It's about working on teams. They're all these skills that are really important no matter what you're going to do in life. And so teaching them in the context of entrepreneurship, which might be a little sexier, still prepares people for no matter what they do to have these tools. I mean, I hear back from students all the time, decades after they've graduated, saying that they use the skills that they've learned every single day and often the tools, the very specific tools that we taught in class that they would use with their teams, no matter where they are in their professional career. Now, you actually have some experience as an entrepreneur, as a founder. Do you think that your experience as a founder, you know, helps you to be a a better teacher? I mean, you know, because they say sometimes that those who can do and those who can't teach, right? But you, you can and you do teach. So, I mean, do you have to be someone who has that background to really understand what they're going through? Well, what I can tell you is that my experience starting a company and selling a company and winding down a company gave me great insights into what I wish I knew when I did this. I always thought, boy, if I had had this training, this education, this knowledge when I started, I would have been in a very, very different place. And I think that's the point is that there's so many things that we can teach people early on in their career that is going to allow them to not make some of the same mistakes that other people had to make on their journey because you end up having the insights that have been gained by others. Now, you also had a speaker series. I mean, you also have a podcast, but on the speaker series, we would bring in lots of founders. We have a tendency to bring in successful founders. Do you think we need to spend more time talking to the unsuccessful ones, right? So that we um, have a better sense of what failures like. I mean, you, you talk a lot about how important it is to be comfortable with failure. But when we say that, you know, we always bring in the super successful people who talked about you know, the failures on their way. Well, but you know what, Greg? Let me tell you, though, we bring in successful people. That's a draw, bring in people who have accomplished something. But we ask all the time about their failures on that path. In fact, you're right, if you're not failing sometimes, you're probably not taking enough risks. And we learn that all the time. I mean, if you talk to Steve Blank, who, you know, has start, been involved with eight startups and has written all sorts of books about it, his books and his insights came from the failures where he realized what happened. I think about my other colleague, Alberto Savoya, who wrote a whole book called The Right It, based on the fact that he had successes and then big failures and what he learned from that. So yes, of course, it's important to bring in people who are successful, but also to drill down and understand what things they did well, what things they didn't, what things didn't work, and what they learned. In fact, I think you have read my books. In, In What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, I talk about having a failure resume and keeping essentially a documentation of all your screw-ups, personal, professional, academic. And you can't just keep a list. You have to mine them for lessons, right? If you keep a list and you go, okay, yesterday I did X, Y, Z. Boy, i should not going to do that again. And here's what I learned. Not only do you get over it much more quickly, but you internalize the lessons and are much less likely to do it again. So I have my students in all my classes keep failure resumes. So you're absolutely right. It's an incredibly important part of the process. I deeply believe that failure is actually data and that you need to understand that every time something doesn't work as you expected, that you have some really interesting data that is going to help you get to the next stage. Now, 
Look, I think VCs in Silicon Valley, they look upon failure as education. They look upon failure as one step along the way. And, and it doesn't impede your ability to get funding for a second company. But, you know, when we think about elite universities like Stanford, you know, the kind of folks that we admit to the university, they're usually not the people that have encountered a lot of failures in their lives. I mean, we, we tend to let in the people who have these glistening resumes. Oh, come on. Come on, come on, come on. Nobody goes through life without skinning their knee, without falling off their bike. The fact that that's how people present themselves in their applications and their resumes doesn't mean that they haven't had failures. I'm going to guess if you look back on your life, there are just as many successes as there are disappointments. But if you're going to write your bio on your website, you're not going to make a list of all the things that didn't work. Well, I mean, but should we ask? I mean, should we ask on application essays for people to you bet. I think it's a great idea. We do this on the Knight Hennessy Scholars application. In fact, there's a part where we say, when did you fail? When did you disappoint someone? When did you let someone down? When did you not meet a commitment? You know, there's short answers here. It's not a whole essay, but we ask people to acknowledge what it is that didn't work and what did they learn from it. And when, you, when you're evaluating those applicants, I mean, if the failure list is longer, does, does that help them you know, on the application? Well, we're not asking for a long list. We're looking for examples, but it's also a measure of humility, being humble enough to understand we're all human. We all mess up. In the world of improv, you know, when you mess up, you go, you know, ta-da. Okay, I failed. You know, let's move on. Okay, thank you very much, as opposed to wallowing in it and learning how to be resilient. Uh, I, I think that resilience is one of the most important traits for everyone, and especially for people who are entrepreneurs. You're going to be in near-death experiences every single day, and being able to pick yourself up and move on is an incredibly important skill. In fact, uh, one of the things I often ask people, in fact, I'll ask you, Greg, okay, going to do some homework <laughs> here, <laughs> is um, when you hit bottom, things really go bad. What's the bottom made of? What's your mental concept of what that bottom is made of? It's kind of like that Ikea place where the kids play with all the, all the rubber balls. Oh, so it's like bubbles. It's like a ball pit. It's like a ball pit. You kind of fall into a ball pit. It's kind of fun. You're kind of stuck for a little bit, but you can crawl in. That's the idea, yeah. Okay, great. Now, some people say it's burning hot lava or a black hole or shards of glass. Other people say it's a trampoline. You know, they bounce and come, you know, they, they hit it and bounce off. I mean, it is the most amazing number of things that people say when asked, you know, what is the bottom made of when you hit it? And then you have to ask, well, who told you that? And that's your mental model. And if you have a mental model that the bottom is burning lava or quicksand, you're not going to be willing to take any risks because you're going to get caught in that horrible situation. And whereas if you think of it as a ball pit or a trampoline, you know, you're going to be willing to take some risks. And so uh, having people understand what their mental model is of failure so that they can actually maybe choose to reframe it, to rethink it. Gosh, that wasn't so bad after all. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't those models get formed relatively early in life? By the time they get to graduate school, is, is it possible to kind of reframe those mental models? Or are we all just kind of polishing the diamonds that come through our universities? I think that often people don't even realize that that's a mental model. They think this is just the way it is. And I remember the first time, I mean, I grew up in, as a young person who was not encouraged to play sports. Like my family was not athletic. I did not play sports. So when I got into the work world, it was the first time I was on a team. 
you know, because we didn't do when I was a kid, we didn't have team projects in school. So I was on a team and I thought, oh, everybody thinks the way I do because i never had experience of working with other people who had really different ways of thinking. And it was such, so eye-opening to me when I finally realized that people engage with the world very differently. And I think the same is true around our attitudes towards failure and resilience is that oftentimes we think that everybody feels the same way until it becomes obvious that they don't and that it's actually a choice, right? You can choose to view failure as falling into a ball pit or diving into a pool of water or being stuck in quicksand and that how do you re reframe it in a way that allows you to be more resilient? Well, now you mentioned earlier that we measure the things that don't matter and you know, things that matter don't get measured. But even though I think everybody talks a good game about the importance of things like creativity and resilience, when it comes to, you know, recruiting, when it comes to admissions and so forth, I, I don't think we, we put enough emphasis on this. I, I was speaking with some folks at the PhD admissions group in a department that I'm affiliated with, and they said, you know, every year we admit the people who have these stellar mathematical capacities, but a lot of them turn out to be not very creative. And we lament the fact that... <laughs> Our PhD students oftentimes just crank out these articles, which are just some incremental thing and, and, you know, no big deal. And, you know, they'll go on and they'll get decent jobs and maybe they'll get tenure and they'll have an undistinguished set of articles with some undistinguished citation count and so forth. And everybody laments, like, why don't we have more creative people? But then when it comes back to the admissions, nobody admits the creative people. But is that because we just don't have a good objective way of measuring it and we're suspicious of any subjective assessments? I don't know. I, I mean, that's my experience. So at Stanford, at Knight Hennessy Scholars, where I read thousands and thousands of applications each year, we have lots and lots of questions that get at uh, creative problem solving and allow that really to shine. We also then, for all the finalists, they get brought to Stanford and they spend several days with us, and we do a lot of interactive work, including group interviews where they're given a very open-ended problem that as a group they have to address. There's no right answer, and they're being evaluated by their ability A, to work with other people, their interpersonal dynamics, but also the ideas that they're generating. So it's something we look at really carefully and are evaluating. We're, we're certainly looking for people who are the big thinkers who are going to have some bold ideas. Now, there's a couple of wonderful concepts that you collect in this book, and maybe we can go through a few of them. One of which is this idea of, and I always focus on the things that are new to me. So this concept of prototyping, you know, I go around telling everybody prototyping, prototyping, prototyping. Here it is in 2023, and I'm encountering this concept of prototyping for the first time, which means that I'm going to wind up teaching it because I'm, I'm a ruthless thief. Great and great. It's brilliant. It's totally brilliant. This concept was designed by a colleague and friend of mine, Alberto Savoya, who had started several companies with great success and that had an enormous failure. And he thought, what happened here? And he did went and like literally mined this failure. He's an engineer. He had had lots of great experience. And he's like, what happened? And he realized that even though they could build it, it was not the right thing to build. And so his mantra is, build the right it before you build it right. And he has come up with a long list of really interesting experiments, early, quick prototypes, right? A prototype test, if it can be made, 
a prenotype test should you make it? And his thesis, which I think is incredibly important, is that we waste a tremendous amount of time and talent and money and energy building things that nobody wants. And that if you can do those early experiments that test the market really early, you're going to be much more well-placed to then put in the effort to build it right. So he wrote a book called The Right It, which I highly recommend. And also, if you want a short version of his material, he has a very, very exciting and dynamic talk on the eCorner platform. So if you look up Alberto Savoya at eCorner.stanford.edu, you'll get his talk. Yeah, we'll definitely put those references on the website. You know, you also cite Lao Tzu, who said, and I didn't know that he said this. I always talk about Lao Tzu in terms of strategy, but he said something about how if you're organizing your life right, then the distinction between work and play is kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, we say that a lot here in Silicon Valley, like do what you love and passion and so forth. But some people would say that's unrealistic and maybe even immature. I mean, how how can we how can we actually live that? Yeah, it's such an interesting question, but I really do believe a lot of it has to do with your attitude. Every single thing is interesting if you look at it the right way. I and mean, if you told me I needed to learn about the New York sewer system, you know, I might go, oh my gosh. But if I said, you know what, that would be probably really interesting. I'm a huge believer that before something is your passion, it's something you know nothing about. And so something might seem like it is boring and uninteresting, but if you have the right mindset, it's going to be fascinating. And in fact, even if you have a job that's boring to say, okay, how do I now, if it's boring, how do I make it interesting? How might I gamify it? How might I find new opportunities for me to make it more efficient? What are the other opportunities in the organization where I could make a difference? If this job isn't taking all of my time, what else should I volunteer for? So Yes, of course, it's a little bit naive saying, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. But that seems naive and that so many people don't necessarily love what they do. But if you have a mindset that what you're doing is something interesting, then it shifts the whole way you think about it. In fact, there's some work by um, Aaliyah Crum, one of the faculty at Stanford, who talks about our mindsets around all sorts of things, including people who are housekeepers at hotels. If you tell them that the work that they're doing actually is healthy for them and is exercise, it actually has a bigger positive impact on their health. So even, you know, just by shifting your mindset about what you do, even if it's a mundane task, you end up having a much better, bigger benefit. Yeah. So I think that when people are skeptical about that, I think it's because they're presuming that you start with the passion, right? And then the passion drives everything. So, you know, they're introspecting to figure out like, what am I passionate about? Oh, I'm passionate about dealing with starvation in Africa or something. And let's go pursue that rather than saying, Hey, here you are, you know, you're a management consultant and you got to figure out how to make air conditioners more cheaply. And so, hey, let's get let's get excited about that. Right? Well, exactly. And then you start learning about air conditioners. They're going, wow. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was listening to NPR yesterday and on the radio, they were talking about air conditioning. And especially as the planet is getting hotter, the need for green air conditioning is really important. And I know someone who works for a company who is trying to make different types of coolants, air conditionings, who is passionate about this. Of course, she had never knew this was an issue 
until she got offered the job and then became extremely passionate about addressing this problem. And that's the point, really important. Passion follows engagement, not the other way around. But you are responsible for engaging, right? If you don't engage, then the passion will not follow. Right. And I've always sort of had this, I was talking to Tom Standage recently about, and he says that this is kind of the journalistic mindset. As a journalist, you know, you walk into a new field. And in fact, at The Economist, he said they rotate people. So if you're a China expert, they might rotate you to Africa or something, you know? And the, and the idea is that if you enter into this new area with less knowledge, you're probably going to wind up asking different sorts of questions than you would if you kind of lived in that domain. I think that a superpower that we need to cultivate is curiosity. I grew up in a family where my father asked a lot of questions. He's probably one of the most curious people I know. And uh, he instilled this in us, this asking questions, being curious, going into any situation and soaking up everything you learn. And I think having that mindset sets you up to be much more satisfied in different settings. Because you never, you're never bored. You walk in and go, wow, how is this working? You know, we would go into a restaurant <laughs> and he would look and he'd say, you know, this is really inefficient the way they're doing this. They should redesign the restaurant. I mean, he certainly was not an expert on restaurants. He would just be paying attention and seeing that there was an opportunity that you could probably fix what was going on. And I think that's a, a wonderful skill to cultivate. Yeah. So this, this observational capacity, I think one of the exercises that you talk about in, in one of the books is where you send your students out into familiar environments and you tell them to note all of the things that they would not normally notice, right? Which I thought was a really kind of cool exercise. Oh, it's super fun. Oh, people love it. So I send them out to the Stanford Shopping Center and they have a two-page long, you know, single-spaced lab they have to do where they have to go into six different stores and evaluate all different things. They have to observe them. Is the door open or closed? What's the temperature? Where are the most expensive items? How long does it take for someone to greet you? I mean, all sorts of things. You know, what music is playing? How does it make you feel? All sorts of things. Two pages of questions about this environment. And they walk out and they say, wow, I never, ever saw any of these things before. And of course, all of these things were designed, right? All of them were designed. All of them were choices. And all of them have an impact. Right. And how much do you think, I mean, in terms of education, I have a relative who is, he's a younger relative and he's, he's attending a school that's very top down. And, you know, I think that all of the curiosity is just being squeezed out of him. And I, you know, I squeezed out. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I went to Montessori school and the whole philosophy of the Montessori school was about cultivating curiosity. And so do we squeeze it out of people? I mean, not just in early childhood education, but in say, you know, the kind of engineering education that you get at a typical university? I think it depends on the school. I think there's some schools that are designed to do the opposite. I mean, Olin College, which was literally designed to be a experiential learning engineering school. I mean, it certainly can be done. I was fortunate to be involved with supporting the university for many years and watched it grow and went to go visit and it was just so great walking into a first-year engineering class where they were had to figure out how to design and build an oximeter. And it was like, this is so amazing, you know, that they first year, first, you know, semester, they're going in and not being lectured to, but they're given some very simple principles and then told how might you apply these to build, build this really actually very, very useful tool. 
So I think it can be done. It's a choice. And I think that's the problem is that it's a choice. And a lot of places choose not to teach this way because it is harder. It takes a different skill set to teach this way. And it's much more difficult to evaluate students. You know, you don't have a multiple choice exam with one right answer. And so, you know, it's, it's something that we have to think about. Is this what we want in the future? And how might we implement that? Now, the, the D school where you teach, I mean, is famous for bringing in people from all sorts of different disciplines and blending them <laughs> and mixing them up. And, and I think that the result is that, you know, the folks who leave are, I guess, more T-shaped than they are when they go in. So is the goal to kind of change the individuals so that they become more capable of a broader set of insights? Or is it really about creating a better division of labor so that folks from these different disciplines can collaborate better? And let me just start with sort of making sure everyone knows what a T-shaped person is. So the idea is that a T-shaped person is someone with a depth of knowledge in at least one discipline and a breadth of knowledge across the top so that they can work with people across disciplines. The D-School is designed to bring people together from across disciplines. So one is definitely to get that cross-pollination, but also to teach a set of tools that can be applied in lots of different settings. It is about understanding what problem you're trying to solve, some empathy, understanding your user. How might you generate, how do you frame a problem around that, what your observations are? generate solutions and a lot of solutions. How do you test those solutions? And so this type, almost scientific method of going about solution finding and problem definition is can be applied anywhere. And I've had students who come out of the classes that I've taught and they literally tell me, you know, that their parents come to visit and they almost don't recognize them. That sometimes these students have such a shift in the way that they think, that it is really monumental to see how they have learned and grown by getting exposure. And again, as I said earlier, I think this is a, somewhat sad that they were not exposed to these tools earlier on because they could have been applied for years. Well, I mean, does part of the, the horizontal piece of the T involve the ability to interact with other specialists more fluidly? Yeah, you bet. Uh, being able to work across disciplines, being able to ask the right questions, how to actually find the people you need. If I'm going to be designing a new car, you know, instead of just saying, okay, I'm going to scoop up the people who are in my current space, who should I be talking to, right? Maybe I don't bring in the engineers and the designers. Maybe I bring someone in who is an artist and someone who is a musician and someone who's, you know, like bring in people from different disciplines who are going to have really different perspectives on this same problem. Now, I, I want to ask you a bit about your corporate work, right? Because a lot of this is at the university level. A lot of it's at the educational level. But a lot of what folks like you do and what I do is we interact with companies. And when we think of a typical sort of management consulting engagement, it's usually, hey, we've got this problem. And, you know, they parachute in and they, they fix the problem and then they, they leave. And then if the thing goes off the rails again, then they bring them back in. And so forth. And so those engagements are, are often less about kind of solving the structural problems and more about kind of uh, alleviating the, the immediate problems. These executive engagements that you do, it seems like they're, they're very short. I mean, how much 
can you do in a small amount of time when you are interacting, say, with executives? If if people are open to it, you can give people some really exciting tools that they can bring back and use right away. Let me just give you a little example. It's a little bit tangential, but I think it talks to the point of what can you do in a short period of time. I did a 10-part TV series in Japan. Uh, NHK had come to me after my book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, came out and said, we'd love to do a, a TV series based on this. So we did it at the D school and we it was all filmed by this Japanese crew for NHK. And after we did eight episodes, they said, this was great. It was super successful. We, everyone loved it, but it would never work in Japan. And I said, really? And they said, yeah, it would never work in Japan. Our students just aren't as creative. And I said, I just don't believe that. So they said, okay, come on over and prove it. So I went to Japan, and this was right after, soon after the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear power plant meltdown. It was a really difficult time in Japan. And I went to Osaka University, and I decided I was going to do the minimum viable intervention with those students. And so I I ran a two-hour workshop with them, and at the end of it, I gave them a challenge. And the challenge was based on a challenge I do with my own students, where I say, create as much value as possible value measured any way you want, starting with this item. And in the past, I had given you know, paper clips and post-it notes and water bottles. This time I gave them a garbage can. I said, take any garbage can filled with trash and you have to basically figure out how to create value. Now, that, of course, that's negative value, right? It's something you pay people to take away. And meanwhile, I gave the same challenge to students all over the world as part of a global innovation tournament. So I now have students all over the world doing the same challenge at the same time that these students in Japan who had two hours of my time teaching them creative problem-solving tools. They had to deliver it the next day. And these students came in and they blew my socks off. But they had done. They blew their own socks off. They had no idea what they could do. And the point is, what I had done was less about teaching them tools and more about giving them permission to unlock their creativity right? I gave them some tools, but I think this is true in a corporate setting too. Part of this is about culture, right? If you can set the culture that allows people to unlock their creativity, amazing things happen. Right. So it's for them to sort of see the richness of opportunity in the world around them. I think you use that term. Exactly. Exactly. But a lot of it comes down to the culture, right? If the culture of the organization is such that, you know, if you fail in any way, you're going to get punished, you're going to get yelled at, guess what? No one's going to try it. I've had situations where I say I will not go in and do a corporate work when they bring in a bunch of people from one level of the organization. And then I know those people are going to come out really fired up and then go back into their company and get just totally frustrated that nothing they learned can, that they can't apply it. So it really is, there's definitely a tops down piece where you need to set the culture that allows you to uh, really stretch your imagination. Yeah, one of the exercises I think you do is you tell people to come up with the worst ideas <laughs> that they could think of. And, you know, I have, I have a thing in my class where I give an award to the stupidest question. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, with MBAs, you know, they embrace it. <laughs> yeah, so what happens? What happens when you do oh, that? Oh, well, you know, you start to get some, uh, some pretty stupid questions. But, you know, some of them are so foundational that I'm kind of taken aback and I don't know exactly how to answer them because they're questioning things that just seem so obvious that when you examine them a little more closely, perhaps they're not as obvious as you think. Right. Or they're questioning something that should be questioned that you just took for granted or everyone else took for granted. 
I love that. I think I'm going to borrow that. Yeah, I'll borrow your bad ideas. You can borrow my, my, my stupid questions. Yeah, the bad ideas are really great, you know, to come up with the worst idea because people think they need to come up with great ideas, which means they come up with things that are obvious and incremental. But when you come up with the worst ideas, then what ends up happening is people come up with really crazy, bold ideas. And then I take those bad ideas, give them to another team who has to turn them into something brilliant. And it takes literally 10 seconds for them to look at this terrible idea and find the seed of something really interesting. And those solutions end up becoming quite fascinating. You must have spent some time with business students because you have a couple two by twos in the book. You have the focus as a noun and focus as a verb. You've got urgency and importance. You've got passion and confidence. I'll let the readers explore all of them. But I guess one question I have for you is if you had to write a sequel to What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, and it was called you know, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 40, what would be in that book? Because it seems like by the time you were 40, you were pretty wise. I mean, it's there. Well, so that's interesting because I actually wrote a blog post called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 40. And so you can find it. And uh, it's, it's gotten a lot of attention. It's kind of interesting. I've always thought maybe I should write that book. But the thing about 40 is that people often think that they're fully cooked and you can start anywhere. You know how old I was when I started at Stanford? I was 41. And so like you can start anywhere. The lane lines, the pool might be on the top, but you can swim under them, <laughs> you know, and really, really, really important is that you don't get a job, you get the keys to the building. So find the building you want to be in and figure out where you're going to get your foot in the door and then figure out how you're going to really make an impact and create new opportunities for yourself. Yeah, it seems a lot of people think it's it's too late, right? It's too late to start a company. It's too late to start a, a degree program. I mean, I remember when I was, I had an opportunity to go to Stanford for grad school. And this was after I'd been, I was about three years deep into a PhD program at University of Pennsylvania. And my advisor moved from Penn to Stanford and said, well, why don't you come to Stanford? And I said, well, you know, I'm already three years in and I'd have to start all over and it's too late for that. I look back and I was like, I was 22, right? I mean, what, what? And I wound up spending another 10 years, you know, on the PhD anyway. So, and then, you know, everyone always thinks it's too late. Is that just a legacy of the way in which careers operated in the past? Or I, I'm guessing that people had that same opportunity even in prior decades. You know, I think that we just create these anchors that are completely contrived, just like, you know, what's the bottom made of when you hit the bottom? At 40, you can start over easily. I mean, there's some things that are more difficult, but, you know, there are people who start medical school at 40, people who start law school at 40. You can, at that point, that you're going to pivot. It's perfectly fine. We are going to have a long careers and uh, starting 40 is still at the beginning. I always think that each decade has a theme. And you often don't know until you get to the middle of the decade what that theme is. So, for example, for me, my 20s was for gaining knowledge. My 30s was for gaining skills. My 40s was for building my platform. My 50s was, you know, like each decade is a different theme. And I think you, because really a decade is a chunk of time that allows you to really accomplish something. And it's really important to stand and say, what is this decade about? What, what am I really focusing on this decade? And I think, you know, some people have a really big hit early on and maybe they get financial security in their 20s. And so that shifts around what they can then do in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But someone might 
not early on have financial security. So that might be a focus, you know, at a later decade. So thinking about what each decade is about really is that helps you shape where you focus your attention. Right. And I think you talk in the book a bit about how people are often reluctant to quit jobs, even when they're kind of miserable. I'm always kind of astonished when I hear about people who kill themselves because of you know, they're, they're miserable at work or they're miserable in a relationship and that that is, you know, something they would choose before first trying to quit their job, right? Like, why would anybody think that they are so, so trapped in their job? I actually did some work for uh, the HR department of a European company and I was talking about, you know, attracting and retaining employees. And he, he pulled me aside and said, well, our employees, they don't quit. They just kill themselves. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my God. Yeah, right? It's like, okay, you got a pretty bad workplace there. But you know, why is it that, that people are so reluctant to start afresh and try out new opportunities? You know, I'm reminded of a famous, do you remember the film I did it with Andre that came out, I think in the eighties, it was a famous cult film. And there's a famous line in it where one of the characters says, you know, New Yorkers are the prisoners and the prison guards. You know, they keep themselves locked in. And I think that's the point. Is that it's an inside game that we often feel that we can't quit? In fact, quitting is often the bravest thing to do. It's the problem is that it's really hard to know, really hard to know when do you persist and when do you quit? Because I actually have a tendency to often quit things too early. When something gets really hard, my brain goes to, okay, I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna move on to something else. And I have to remind myself, okay, that was an interesting feeling. Can I persist? Do I persist? And there are times in which I regret having quit something that was valuable. And I go, you know, I probably should have tried to solve that problem as opposed to running away from it. But most cases, when you leave a situation that isn't working, you go on and do something better. Do you think that educational institutions can play a role here? I mean, I have a friend who's doing this program at Stanford. You know, he's he's in his late 50s and he's spending a year at Stanford as sort of a, you know, mid-career reboot. And as a DCI, as a distinguished branch. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I had a student in my MBA program who was in his mid-50s. You know, we think of universities as the place where the young people go to kind of polish their skills and so forth. Do you think that the university is going to ultimately shift towards an older demographic and become a place where you can come and go undergo a transition or like a reboot or you can pimp, pimp out your car? It's really interesting. A few years ago, the D School did an entire exploration about the future of the university. And one of their big ideas was just that, that the university should be a place where you come and go, where you stay and then you leave and go out in the world and you come back. And it's interesting to think about how that might work, but you, you can imagine creating a space like that. I mean, there are different, definitely retreats that people go on. There are places people go, like the Modern Elder Academy, where you go and get retooled. But I think universities, their business model is very designed around having people for a period of time. That makes it difficult to rethink that. But boy, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. So it'd be almost like you go to your, go on a retreat, you go on a vacation, you go to some therapeutic environment, and the university could provide that. Because I think it has a competitive advantage in the kind of reorientation of the way in which you think. And an explosion, exposure of things. I mean, but there are lots of, for example, Stanford and lots and lots of universities have continuing studies courses. So there, you know, you could just keep retooling and taking courses 
uh, when you're out of the formal, you know, four years of undergraduate or graduate school where you could just keep taking classes, which is a wonderful opportunity. We should be teaching people how to learn, right? Learning doesn't stop when you get out of school. One of my colleagues always said, you should take classes from the worst teacher you can because you are not going to have great teachers always spoon-feeding you material for the rest of your life. You should have to learn how to learn things on your own. Maybe go work for the worst boss <laughs> while you're at it. Yeah, well, you know what? That's actually a really interesting point. Some of my students who do summer internships and have a really, really horrible experience, we end up talking about how that was one of the most valuable things. You spend a few months, a couple months in a terrible environment. They then know what not to do. Well, now I know that when I get my bad teaching evaluations, I can tell everybody that this was uh-huh, an incredibly uh-huh, valuable yes. experience. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a reframing. I like that. Yeah. Well, Tina, thanks so much. I think we could talk all day. These books are fantastic. Check any one of them out because they're all basically crash courses. The latest is called Creativity Rules. What I wish I knew when I was 20. And, you know, buy it even if you are older than 20. Never too late. And ingenious. Crash Course on Creativity. Thanks so much for chatting. Great. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thanks, Greg. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.